Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Welcome to episode seven of This Spiritual Fix. Today, we are going to be navigating some difficult waters talking about childhood grief. So stay tuned for a really worthwhile conversation. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Anna. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited about our podcast because we've not launched that many episodes and people are getting great feedback. So that's been really... That's been really good because it's been hard for me, not as much as you, because you're up, you're publicly out of the spiritual closet telling everyone you're a medium and a psychic. I have been more in the spiritual closet. So for me to come out in the open and discuss the topics we're discussing and admit that, yeah, I have visions of monks and past life memories, et cetera. That was hard for me, but the feedback I'm getting about the podcast has made me realize that the people who love me are going to love me regardless of what I say. And the people who don't love me are going to not love me regardless of the stuff I say. So why not just be honest? That is exactly it. So I had a mentor um, and an amazing man at the first job I ever had when I was like 23. I was a chemist, um, a research and development chemist. And my mentor said, he said, there are three types of people. He said, there are people who will on one side of the fence that are always going to be against you. And there are people on another side of the fence that are always going to be for you. And then there are the people on the fence. The only ones that you ever put any energy into are the people who are on the fence. He may not why, have said why it exactly even bother? Like that. Why? Fuck the people on the fence. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that's interesting well, though. But like the whole point being like, there's no point in trying to change the opinion of one of the other right. ones that have already made their decision. So, well, one of our mutual teachers, Suzanne Rajas, has been uh, sat the end, posted uh, a message from his teacher, Stuart Wilde. And I love this quote. It really resonated with me. It said, um, don't hide yourself. I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, don't hide yourself because the people who can see you, who can really see you are going to see you regardless if you hide yourself or not. Mm-hmm. And then the people who can't see you, who are never going to be able to see you are never going to see you anyways. Mm-hmm. So why are you hiding? And that really resonated with me. Like, like life is so short, like life is so short. Like why waste time trying to make sure that other people see you in a certain way? 
Like the people who can see you, the they're going to see you even when you're faking it. Yep. So anyways, it's been, I feel like it's a little liberating, at least for me to do this podcast. Cause I feel like I'm telling my family and my friends like, like, uh, Hey, I believe in aliens. Hey, I believe in angels. Hey, I talk to my angels. Hey, like, yeah. um, I don't, I'm not like putting myself in this box of Miss Normal anymore. And I don't think anyone believed the Miss Normal story anyway. So, yeah, well, it's, it's, I, I would say that the thing that, the thing that's really good and validating for me is like, I've kind of always been like this kind of one woman show, just kind of like doing whatever I was inspired to do. But then it always felt like it's so nice to have you like, cause we talk about, we did, we did this anyway. Like we were yeah. doing this anyway. We just decided of- since basically, <laughs> since you were moving out of the city that we needed a way to maintain our, yeah. our, um, weekly, daily, uh, hourly correspondence, correspondence of self-discovery. <laughs> exactly. And, and for me, it feels really good to, to have the, have your experience and your stuff come into it because it just feels so balanced. It doesn't feel like me just like channeling into a box, if you know what I mean, which is what I've done in the past, um, which, which is good for me. Like, and I think it's, I think that the stuff that comes out of it is also good, but it's not the same. Yeah. And I think what's nice is that I find, and I think it's true so much that when you're close to another person, who's also committed to self-discovery, you have parallel learnings. And I've noticed that not just with you, but with other friends were like, Mm -hmm. you have this huge aha moment and I kind of understand it. And then like two weeks later, I get it. Or, or we both experience very similar dreams or very similar experiences within the same week. And it's almost like we're on this collective, collective catalytic path. Mm -hmm. Um, and it can also be just like, you know, when you learn a new word, you start to to see it and hear it everywhere. And it could just be that, like you brought to my awareness, something that was in quote unquote, your garden, as you call it, like your reality field, Mm -hmm. suddenly it's in my reality field. So yeah, I think, I think it's great to have a partner in crime. So anyone listening, find a partner in self-discovery because it makes you feel like you're not totally crazy. Oh, so much so. And it mostly makes you, yeah, that's everything, right? Like we've talked a lot about Robbie, our mentor and the kind of wild women group that we have, wild woman group that we have, um, in which she's kind of, you know, the mentor that leads it, the, the crone and where the, where the mothers, um, who are, and it's just the three of us, but like being able to talk and not have to explain yourself. Yeah. Or, or like not dumb it down, but like, um, well, she's been seeing us even when we couldn't. Yeah, exactly. Like she's, she's (laughs) always been able to see us. She's always been able to see us. So it really helps, but you know, what's really inspiring to me is like, so TikTok is obviously this really interesting, like, cause coming from learning, the learning platform of TikTok is so fascinating to me. Did you know that the entire pandemic 2020, I never really looked at TikTok except for the occasional funny Mm -hmm. things my sister sent me. I downloaded the app a couple weeks ago. I love TikTok. People are so freaking creative. Mm -hmm. Like, like the amount of creativity in the world is mind boggling and it's entertaining. And then these stories of like real paranormal experiences, that's what I'm living for. Like I love turning it on and I get on spiritual TikTok or paranormal TikTok. I don't know how it found me, but I love it. <laughs> and I get to hear little stories of like a near death experience from a 16 year old girl or like the thing that I love about this is what I've always said about this movement. If you want to call it a movement, because it does feel like a movement, it feels like an awakening. You can call whatever new age thing you want, but 
but like the mainstream has had the only voice Right. So like, so there was always like the mainstream voice, which is like Fox news. Yeah. But not even that, like movies who are just like, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I can see things like that, that whole, like, I have to explain myself. Whoopi Goldberg and ghost. Yeah. Like you're going to think I'm crazy, but I did see this. And it's like, and so then half the movie or half the TV show is that person trying to convince the other person they're not crazy. It's like Disney's Moana where like Moana is just the chief of the village. No questions asked next. Whereas like all the other Disney movies up till that that up till then is like the main character trying to prove that she's worthy of leading or capable of leading. Yeah. And Moana is just like, okay, here's the chief of the village. Now let's move on. Yeah. And like, I feel like TikTok's like that. Yes. We've established that paranormal experience is real. Exactly. Everyone's experienced it exactly. next. Exactly. And that's the nice thing because if you keep having introductory conversations and trying to validate yourself and say that your experiences are real, you're literally just going to spend your entire time validating your experience. And it's really annoying because you're losing the depth of the things that you can yeah. learn from other people. And I feel like that is what TikTok does in particular. If you get into any of those channels is you feel like you can have depth of conversations, even if they're only 60 second snippets. Yeah. I'm loving, I'm loving TikTok. I'm, yeah. I'm really a fan. Yeah. Well, oh, go ahead. No, no. I was like, especially the alien stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I love alien stuff. Um, I'm a fan. There was a funny meme and I posted it on our spiritual page and it's like other parents. And it's like, don't worry. It's a mother tucking in her child. And she's like, don't worry. Aliens aren't real. They can't hurt you. And then it's like me as a parent. And it's like, it's like aliens don't come from the sky. They travel interdimensionally and they're already here living among us. And I'm like, yep, that's, that's the kind of parent we are. Yeah. So yeah. But we'll save aliens for a whole nother episode because I feel like the aliens deserve their own episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also, I feel like it's a really good teaser for everyone to be like, aliens. Oh, my God. These people are really cool. Let's listen more. (laughs) (laughs) Or they might say uh, we might have just lost a big chunk of our audience, but that's okay because the people who can see us are going to really see us anyways. That's right. That's right. So I want to hear because Chris and I are both experts in grief. (laughs) We both lost our mothers to illness at, in our childhood Mm -hmm. and grief is universal. Like I think some people think, well, I've never experienced the death of a loved one um, or I've never lost, you know, I've never Lost a pet. Lost a pet or my grandma, all my grandparents are still alive. I don't know grief. I think it's important to recognize grief is universal in the sense like, like the pandemic was a grief for a lot of people. People had to cancel plans. People lost jobs. It wasn't the year they wanted. There's grief in that. Mm -hmm. You know, people who go, who get disabled, there's grief in losing the ability of their limb. You know, there's, um, grief is universal. You don't have to experience death or like quote unquote obvious loss to know what it's like to miss something and have something that you love and it not be there anymore. So you took a workshop on motherless daughters Mm -hmm. and is it from that same author? Cause I read that book as a child. Hope Hope Edelman. Yes. My, my beloved cousin Liz gave me that book when I was like 15. So my mother died when I was 11. Your mother died when you were six. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's a great book. And I would love to hear what you learn. And I think I have a lot to learn from it. And I think anyone who's experienced any form of grief yep. in their childhood can relate to this. Yep. And so, grief could be even like, oh, sorry to interrupt, no, but go ahead. could you even say that like divorce is a form of grief because you're losing the family no, I, structure you once knew? I think that grief is the expression of the reaction to loss. Right. 
and you lose a family, uh, you yeah. lose your family structure in a divorce. There's, there's grief there, I would right. assume. And it's a change that is, and loss is a change that is, um, you can't fix it. You can't, you can't, you can't, you know, go back. Right. It's like, it feels like a, um, a dam in time. And so you can't go back upstream. So whether that loss is the loss of a loved one in a divorce, whether that one is the loss of child or a parent or, um, a friend, um, or whether that loss or even is moving to school, moving to schools. Oh, oh yeah. Mean, like all of it. Right. Um, and, and the thing that we can talk, we'll talk about this later, but you know, some of the interesting things is that like, there are grief responses going on everywhere because it is something that we don't actually deal with, like in any of the things that we're going to be doing. So I'm going to kind of explain um, what I want to do is I'm going to go through what was gone through in this, what she went through in this webinar, which was specifically kind of early childhood loss. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I also am going to come out of it and say, like, this is what I've done throughout my life. And this is what I've seen other people to deal with grief, because it's really important to recognize that you may be like one of the 0.000001% of people who can legitimately look at their entire lives and say, I've never experienced grief or loss. Mm -hmm. um, but you will. <laughs> Sorry. That was, <laughs> but that's the, the that's reality the is you will like, yeah. you will not go through your life without losing someone you love. I right. Mean, right. And we all deal with it in a way that it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll get into it. Um, so basically, uh, what we, um, what we talked about is like, it was, it was specifically about losing a mother in early times, but there, it was interesting because there were 200 people in the webinar and there were people who had lost parents or very close relatives, like things like that. Um, and the really interesting thing was that almost every single one of these people had lost one of these people before 1991, around 1991, right? My mom died in 91. Yeah. So my mom died in 89. There was not a single person there who was post 1991 loss. Like they, well, and that had chatted in the comments because of the fact that early childhood bereavement, like childhood bereavement had never been studied prior to 1991 or 19, like the early nineties. Right. And so nobody, there was no books about it. There was no nothing. There was nothing to help people understand that this is what is going on. And I think that hope that hope Edelman was one of the ones she wrote motherless daughters in the middle of the nineties. You said you read it when you were 15. Right. Yeah. Um, and we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but even then I don't think she was actually going through early childhood bereavement. No, I think her mother died when she was much older. Yeah. I think it, I, that's what she said. She said it was like back in the, um, she was in her twenties or thirties, but I read that book. 18. Oh, she was, she okay. was 18. Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing is that, okay, so this is actually just a little thing in childhood development in case y'all want to know early childhood loss ages zero to three is like kind of the, the beginning in which it's really, really hard to be able to remember anything about a loved one. Because one of the things, one of the processes of grief that we have to go through is that we have to understand that you have a memory, right? Like you're going to have memories associated with that person. They could be good and they could be bad. Right. Um, and if you're in a case of being a child, then it's going to be really hard for you to remember those memories. Right. So we're going to talk about memories in a second, but first we're going to talk about mild, um, the milestones six to 12 months is separation anxiety, right? That's when separation anxiety exists. So if you lose a parent in six to 12, when you're six, to 12 months old, you're going to miss somebody you're going to have despair and resignation and detachment and you're coping. Right. But at the same time, you're not going to remember your caretaker probably unless you do some massive hypnotic regressions. Right. right. Um, 
pre-verbal kids have a very hard time if they lose a parent from zero to two because they can't actually express what's going on. Um, they have no words to process for it. And um, you start to see regression of like if, if there's a loss in that time, then there's going to be a regression probably of behavioral milestones mm-hmm. um, because they can't necessarily express their grief. Right. Because what it does is, is and this is um, what I've noticed in my meditation is that grief Grief is like, it's like the heart. If you want to talk of it, like the emotional body is basically pulling more energy. It's pulling more um, processing power out of the brain and into the body. Right. And so like, if you don't deal with it, then you're, what you're finding is that like, sometimes you feel like a bit split. Okay. So then from three to six years old, from three to six years old, people are very susceptible to explaining loss in a euphemism. What right. does that mean? Like euphemisms that they're told that their parents went away or they're told oh. that somebody went away. They're not given truth. Yeah. And so I was in that category where I was protected and not able to see my mother in a hospital. I never saw her dead body. I never saw anything along those lines. And so for me, I just, ha- it was a mental experience because I had, I was told. It was mysterious. It was totally mysterious, but I was told that she was gone and I understood, I think I viscerally understood it, but I also couldn't really figure it out because I was just like, she was there one day and then she just wasn't right. Like I couldn't see the transition process of a person dies, then they're in a, then their body is empty and you can see their, that their spirit is not in their body anymore. Cause, and then, you know, it can right. kind of go on like that. I was also protected from my mother's illness. Like she had stage four cancer. And, um, I was protected. I wasn't meant to know that she was probably dying. You know, it was like, oh, she's going to be fine. She has one more chemo treatment, whatever. And I remember I went to a grief, I was in therapy, of course, for many years. And one time the therapist said, you know, your parents protecting you from her actually dying, denied you compassion and denied you truth, you know? And, and I, wrestle with that a lot. And I want, I could see why a parent would be like, I'm not going to tell them that one of their parents is dying. Cause it's going to make the kid more anxious. And then like, it's going to, they're going to be all consumed with the parent dying and you want them to live a normal childhood. Like that's a really hard decision for parents to make. Do I protect the child from the truth so they can live more like their life more fully? Or do I give them the truth so they can be compassionate and understand suffering? And you know, it's really hard, really hard choice for parents to make, I've now come to the conclusion it's better to be honest. I think so. I, I think if I, God forbid, am ever dying or my husband's dying, I'm going to be honest with my kids. Yeah. Um, even at the expense of their happiness in that moment, I think in the long term, it's going to be easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I remember the last time I saw my mother uh, and I always wonder how it was, I knew it was the last time I saw her. The only thing I can think that happened is I'm pretty sure nobody told me it was, but I think that they said she's going away to the hospital. They didn't say she's not coming back. Like definitely. I think shortly after that. Protect she you. They're protecting you. Yeah. And I remember I went, I, I made her a picture. Um, I remember that. Like, I remember I didn't want to go down and say goodbye because I needed to like finish my picture for her. And I always wonder like how it is that I could remember that moment unless oh, a couple of weeks later when I found out that she had died, like I went back and was like, what was the last time? And I, and I made that like a, a an emotional memory that like a traumatic emotional memory that I could remember. Um, 
since I remembered very little from that period of time, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but between the ages of three and six, kids are trying to master tasks. So they're trying to come up with autonomy over bodily functions. So they're self-regulating their emotions. They're coming up with social interaction skills. Like they're coming up with, you know, they have different attachment behaviors and there isn't a parent, especially if you're losing a same sex parent to model how that's supposed to work. Sometimes even if you do have a model, it's not the best, right? But like right. in this or case- Or your model's sick. Yeah. Or your model's sick. So, so then in my case, my, my model was sick from two to four, two to six. So never in my actual, what could be my active memory, could I ever have a model that was like, this is how you're supposed to behave. This, and, and I can say, honestly, every single situation to your point, your original point of like truth and telling truth, I feel like for me, I my, one of my massive hangups is like when people don't give me all the information now. Yeah. And I can tell that that stems from this experience. Right. I have this thing with my husband and we, we are like, we will never lie to our kids. Like, like my kids will ask me questions that other parents would say, would lie about, Oh, that's not true. Or, you know, like, mom, are you going to die one day? You know? And parents usually be like, Oh, don't worry about that. Da, 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 da. And I'm just honest. I'm like, yeah, I am going to die one day. And I hope that it happens long time from now when you're able to deal with it. Yeah. You know, maybe this is the wrong thing to do, but I try to never lie and like, just honest, be honest and phrase things in ways that they can understand. Cause I hate, I hated that. I didn't know. And I just don't like, I just want my kids to know that you can always trust me, you know? Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I think my husband would probably agree too, because of the amount of time that I'm like, why aren't you telling me the most important information? Like, even if it's not even important, I'm just like, you have to tell me because then I can be prepared. Then I can like, know. And, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a six in the Enneagram, which means that I'm always thinking the worst. And so if I don't have all the information, then I can't plan for the worst. So it's also like that contributes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that too. comes from this. So moving on. Ages seven to nine is more complex. You're trying to manage the chaos of the world. You're developing empathy, self-care and independence. Like you're trying to really like, you know, come up with all these different things. So what ends up happening is that if you have a bereavement experience that happens in any one of these periods, it's gonna, I, I'm not going to say I'm, I, I will actually say it's probably going to affect the development of any one of these particular things. Like if you haven't had a chance to get like, you know, autonomy over bodily functions in the bank and you like know how to deal with that, or you like, then you're going to have some issues with that. Like for me, I feel like mine was all about, uh, so much stuff with like social interaction, uh, having trouble self-regulating my emotions. Like so many of those different things just kind of stopped and then I never really developed them. And I've had to develop them in my thirties because crazy, like it's totally crazy. Like, uh, it's just amazing. Um, so, so those are the stages of, and she only did for zero through nine because it was all early childhood. It was all okay. pre 10. And, um, but the idea being that obviously your brain keeps on developing throughout your life, but that a lot of the stuff happens in, up until you're 15. So that what you're finding is that like, um, actually 15 to 18. So anything that happens before that, and actually you were 11. I had a trauma person once tell me that anything that happens before the age of 12. So before you go into the puber, like basically anything that's pre um, pre puberty, you take responsibility for no matter what it is your fault. You think it's your fault. 
Right. So no matter what it is. And so that, Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I thought I was a murderer. Mm -hmm. Um, up until literally six months ago when I had a Marissa peer RTT rapid transformation therapy session, which I highly, highly, highly recommend for anyone dealing with childhood trauma. Um, but yeah, I, I lived a life of thinking I was a murderer because a, my mom told me you're killing me, which is something that parents can say, Oh, you're going to be the death of me. Oh, you're killing me. Yeah. But when you say that to a kid and then you die and they haven't gone through puberty yet, that child thinks they really did kill you. So, mm-hmm. um, luckily that's gone now. I mean, yeah. luckily I worked that out, but totally, totally could see how a child would think everything's their fault. And they do that. Don't they do that with divorce too? Oh, everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. So multiple, like the dog things. died. It's because I was thinking bad thoughts about the dog or, you know, my parents got divorced because I was born. Yeah. Mine was a conscious memory. Like I consciously remember I made a wish to be with my dad because my mom neglected us to a certain extent because my parents separated when I was early. And so my mom neglected us to a certain extent. I didn't process it as neglect. I just processed it as like, this is crappy. I don't want to be here. And so I wished to be with my dad. And then she died shortly after that. So for me, it was like a very conscious memory of being like, oh shit, I did this. Like I, I was the one who wished for her to die. Yeah. There's this great book called women who love too much. It talks about the origination of codependency. And one of the things is it says that there's like the Oedipus complex, you know, where children, where daughters unknowingly, they want to marry their fathers and like boy sons want to marry their mothers, the Electra and the Oedipal, the Oedipus yeah. and Electra complex. Mm-hmm. And she says that if divorce or death happens to this the parent of the same sex in your childhood, it creates in you this belief that you're like omnipotent and powerful with your minds because the child secretly wants to kill her mother to marry her father and vice versa with the boy. And then if the mother actually does die, then the daughter has this belief like, oh my God, my mind caused that. I am so powerful. And then how does that turn into codependency? Well, codependents try to save the world and heal the world and why they think they have some special powers over others. And they can get that belief from their childhood because they're being told, they're, they're learning in their childhood. You can control the world. Look, you can kill your mother. That is so interesting. Super interesting. So yeah, people who experience loss of the same sex gender in their childhood, and not just, I'm not just talking about death loss. I'm talking about also divorce and then going to live with the opposite gender parent, et cetera. Um, it can lead to codependency in a, as an adult because you think you can, you can change other people. Most people who have early childhood loss don't remember their parents. Or it doesn't even have to do with early childhood. There are a lot of people who they go through a grief experience and they don't remember it. It happened to my friend. She was adopted she experienced tremendous grief during her birth that she could not tap into mm-hmm. because she believes, and it, she was born in South Africa. There's like no records. She could never find it out. But like she had this exper- a tremendous sense of grief her entire life. And she really believes that her mother died during childbirth. And it's just, it's just, it was, it's just really hard to see that because she can't put it into a memory. She can't put it into words. All she knows is she was adopted and she carries with her tremendous grief. Yeah. Yeah. And this is even so, so in that case, not remembering your birth, which a lot of people can't do, but even in regression, you can't remember your birth, which also some well, people can yeah. or can't do. Um, 
but that she just has the sense of it. Right. And then also the idea that like, even someone who's an adult, like if you're, um, if you're 18 or if you're 25 or if you're whatever, is that sometimes you only remember certain parts. Like you'll, you'll completely shut out different parts. You you can, you, your, your memory, our memories are so good at trying to protect us from trauma and the memory of trauma because of the fact that like remembering the past and all that kind of stuff, it brings up, it, 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 messes with our homeostasis, right? And what messes with our ability to like function because it makes us have panic attacks and have all these physiological effects. Right. And also like the lost twin syndrome, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of people are born not knowing that they had a sibling in utero that died and, um, and they experience, they carry with them that grief of something that they can't explain. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it, so it's really interesting to see the trauma responses, particularly yeah, to, we're going to in utero to trauma. I think that we might be losing our audience here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, yeah, it was, but so basically childhood amnesia is, is common before three. Um, and, uh, the, anything that happens after that is that like only pre three memories happening, um, uh, are the ones that the child is coached to remember. Right. Right. Coaching through photos and talking and telling stories. Exactly. Exactly. And for a lot of people, I think I was one of those that just never happened because no one wanted to remember that person. No one wanted to talk about her. Yeah. Um, uh, And then after that, between three and six, it's like you're remembering physical descriptions, only concrete traits. Blonde hair, blue eyes, black hair. Right. Short, tall not even a voice sometimes, like not even anything, even if you would remember in videos and things like that, but you don't remember if that person made you happy. You don't remember if that person was happy. You don't remember that kind of stuff at all. Um, so then, and then, so, or emotionally charged memories. I was just talking last night, two nights ago about my fourth birthday party and how much I remember it because it was so traumatic for me. Um, because, Why? uh, it was like a, it was, it was whatever, but it was like, it's, it's like my, common story is that I, um, I went to Austin with my mother, um, because she was dating someone there and it was my birthday and they gave me a cake and it was chocolate, but it had nuts in it. And that was not the worst part. (laughs) That that was, but for whatever reason, that was so traumatic to me because it was like somebody who just fundamentally didn't know me. And I was just stuck with all these strangers. And I was like with nobody I knew for my birthday other than my mother. And she was completely just with her partner. Like she was not paying attention to me at all. And so much to the fact where the night of my birthday, there was this really heavy window with like a Coke bottle holding it open. And I didn't understand. And I pulled the Coke bottle out and it smashed my thumb. And I just started like, I was like in extreme pain. And my mom just like put me in a room by myself and just let me cry for like hours. Um, because she just wanted to be with her partner and with her friends, which is like, you know, so, cause I remember that. I remember like oh, really everything about that. And it may have even been my third, but that was an emotionally charged memory, right? That was something that I've like, I've had, <laughs> I've, I've worked through that a lot at this point. So I don't really have the same emotional charge anymore, but like, I still remember it. Um, and so autobiographical erasure is this concept of what we were talking about before in which a trauma response basically erases stuff, even at, at, but particularly in, you know, younger kids or, and kids from zero to 10, but also, in other situations. It's what it's called is autobiographical erasure. Like I'm just going to erase this part of my mind because it causes too much pain and trauma and I don't want to necessarily remember it. Um, 
similar to adoptees. A lot of adoptees have autobiographical erasure of pre, like before they were adopted. Right. Um, and you know, it's really difficult for kids who are doing this or adults who are trying to grieve a parent that they don't remember. It's like a ghostly figure of someone who they know that they're supposed to be sad about missing, but they can't really remember right. it, which is definitely it's what like I have. It's like an auric yeah. imprint on their field. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember I would have dreams about my mom occasionally in the years afterwards. Um, but then at some point in my mid teens, they just disappeared. Mine too. I miss those dreams. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then every time I've had a dream since it's been maybe one or two times and they've been kind of disturbing, like they haven't been necessarily the kind of dream that I wanted to have about right. that person. I've not dreamt of my mom in like over 25 years. I would love to yeah. dream of her again. Yeah. So one of the things that they say in terms of dealing with this is that it's a really good idea to try and retrieve stories, memories, and everything that you can about the person to try and fill in the autobiographical erasure because otherwise you can't piece the story together. Is this for people under six who lost someone? This is for people, this is for anybody who has autobiographical erasure. Which is, which is adoptees. Uh, adoptees. This is anybody who's, um, it's going to be more common in kids. Uh, but it can happen at other times. Like it's a really good idea to give yourself the story because that is the access to the emotions. Well, like let's say someone's adopted. Like what do you suggest? They get on 23andMe and a hunt down. I mean, I guess that's no. a whole nother topic, but how do people find the stories if they don't have access to these so memories? That's a good question. So it could be, and I know a lot of adoptees who do this, who do go and try and find and fight, figure out the story because for them, the grief is not only the grief of, um, there's also can be rejection that's associated with it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so a lot of people I know, almost so many adoptees, I think almost every single adoptee that I know, which is probably a dozen, they've all gone for a search for their biological parents um, biological mother. And they've wanted to understand that story because that is, again, they're mourning a grief, a ghostly figure. And there's associated with like, why did that person leave? Like, why was I adopted if I don't have that story? Right. Um, cause that, cause mm -hmm. yeah, there's grief. There's probably double grief. It's like grief of losing that person. And then grief of no, of, of, of losing a life that you would have known who you were or like where you're from. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the things that they did talk about, which was interesting was that, you know, we talk about how I'm a hypochondriac, right? Um, we were talking about how the fact that if you lose a parent, especially when you're young, but if you lose a parent to a health thing, you're going to have health anxiety very, you're very likely going to have health anxiety oh, really? in general. I don't have health anxiety. Well, but you were, you were a bit older, but for me, uh, and I talked about this in episode two, and I talked about the body betrayal stuff, but this whole idea of like, well, why did this person leave? Why did this person leave? Because their body betrayed them because their body made it so that they couldn't stay on earth. And so therefore I can't trust my body because it's going to do something that I don't want it to do. Right. When, when you just don't understand it because you weren't given the ex full explanation, like it was only years later when I was with, um, my mom's best friend that she was like, she kind of explained what my mom was going through mentally because she, like they were best friends at the time. And like, it made, she, she explained to me how much trauma release my mom was doing. Like she explained to me how much, like my mom had experienced a significant amount of trauma in her childhood and was, she was trying to get rid of it, but she couldn't remember it. 
which I thought was so interesting because again, it's the memory thing, but she couldn't, she had autobiographical, my mom had autobiographical relationship, erasure of her trauma. And she was so obsessed with it that, and she never released it. She couldn't release it. She couldn't find it. Right. So then that started its own thing to be like, oh my God, if you can't remember something, it can still kill you. But you know, that, that was something also I worked through. I probably worked through that. And like as after, right after I heard that. So, um, it was really good for me to piece together that story of, of what she was going through so that I could develop a more holistic approach to how I deal with my own health. It makes it so that I try and purge everything that gets stuck in my system. It's, it's great that your mother's best friend stayed in touch with you though. Have, mm-hmm. has she continued? Yeah. Um, for years she took us, um, every week we, we went for a week to the beach and she did an incredibly good job of, helping to be a steadfast kind of reminder. We never really talked about her during those times. It was just more of a, an experience to kind of be together and to kind of connect to that side because my, my whole, my mom's whole family basically is just like non-existent. Like it just doesn't like (laughs) there's just, they've all either died or they never were alive or like there was just, there's a ton of trauma and like very crazy stuff in that family. But the, um, So she was like the anchor that helped us anchor to that. And then when I was old enough, that's when she was like, okay, now I'm going to tell you about all this kind of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Didn't she give you all your mom's journals? That was, so that was my room, my mom's roommate at the time when, um, when she passed, uh, she lived, they, the roommate lived with her and, um, she had kept them and she was supposed to give them to us when we were 40. Um, but I got them. My sister had them and then she gave them to me and then I got them and I read some of them and I was just like, these are not meant to be read. Like they were just complete trauma release journals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I burnt them. Um, when I was, uh, when I was living in my house off grid, I, my dad came over and I like, we burnt them together in this huge bonfire and it was just like, it was really good. I feel like it released the energy from needing to be on the planet. Like we don't need those trauma, traumatic memories on the planet, but yeah. So one of the things that they talked about at the end of this was about how, and this is one of kind of, we're going into what do you do to deal with grief is that, uh, you, when you get to the age that your mother was when they passed is a humongous milestone Mm -hmm. and it's something that should be celebrated. Um, it should, there should be like a ritual around it. There should be something that's like that. Um, your sister hit the age, She right? did. She did. And I remember she sent me a text and she said, I am officially older than mom, older than, older than our mom was. Um, and I'm just reaching that point myself. So I'm in the two years prior to when my mom died. And so I'm leading up to that time period and I'm feeling a lot of health anxiety as a result of it because of the fact that she died of breast cancer. Um, so, so kind of, I want to talk about grief and handling grief. I love grief. You know that I love grief. Yeah, I do. Is it like your favorite emotion? No, it's not, but it has become, it has become a good friend. I spent so many years running from my grief mm-hmm. and then trying to heal my grief. And I finally made friends with my grief and it feels so good. And, um, yeah, I can say, I love my grief. I know that might sound weird or controversial, but I've, I've done, I've just, I feel like I've done everything Mm -hmm. that I could do to heal it and fix it. And then like, I'm finally realized I did, I had a body work session. I had craniosacral therapy session with this woman named Molly Tajay here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, she was working on my body and, and we got to like my heart and I could just feel this like black, you know, like all just this grief thick in my body. Like it was physical and I just made friends with it. And I'm like, you're here and you're always going to be here and it's okay. Like you are part of me. And I think I spent so many years of my life trying to take the grief away and get rid of the grief, but the grief was just the inverse of love. Like if you get rid of grief, you get rid of love. Cause what is grief? Grief is love with nowhere to go. Kind of. Yeah. And so anyways, I love my grief. It's, it's part of who I am. It makes me love better. Yeah. And, um, and it makes me empathize with people more. Yeah. And, um, I'm just done thinking grief is a problem. Like yeah. it's part of me. It will always be part of me. Yeah. And that's, that's really interesting. You say that because for years I thought of, because of the kind of circumstances that I've explained that for me, I saw that grief sat in my chest Yeah, and I knew that it sat in my mom's chest. And since she died of breast cancer, I was like, oh, well her, I was like her trauma crystallized into form of breast Breast cancer. cancer. Right. Yeah. So I was like, I got to get rid of this. Right. And I remember, God, it was like 10 years ago. Now I was going over the Himalayas and, um, I was on the Annapurna circuit and we were up at high altitudes and you just had to like walk like 20 miles a day sort of thing. And with like a heavy pack on and very low oxygen environments. Um, and I would just get to this, like, I could feel the trauma in my body at that point. Like I could feel it in my chest because my chest was like, I would feel like this panic kind of come over me. And like, I, I, I just knew it. I just knew it because I was like in a very like high state, just like exercising all the time and being in a low oxygen environments and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember I would, I would say the chant like, Om Mani Padme home. Like mm-hmm. I would just like say what it in my head. Again? Um, it, it means the circle, the wheel of life. Like it's basically okay. like. <laughs> there is a lotus. Oh, Padme is lotus. Mm-hmm. Well, Om Mani. Padme home. Um, well, I, I know it has to do with, it's basically like. The cycle of life. It's the cycle Cause, of cause life. the lotus is life. life. Yeah. yeah. The lotus is the mud and then the, and then it blooms and then it dies yeah. again. Um, and then not everyone makes it up to the surface. There's so many analogies with lotuses and Buddhism in particular. Uh, but, and, and then they're all like they're in the Himalayas. There's like all the, um, there'll be temples with the things that you can twirl. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of that mantra is everywhere. And so I would just say it to myself in my head and I would just take one step at a time. And I was just like, this is it. This is how I deal with my grief. Like I don't have to, to get rid of it. I just have to be okay with it. And I just have to recognize that the cycle, it was like a form of an early form of acceptance before I love acceptance, forgiveness. Yeah. Before I had actually embodied it and it helped so much. And I went through a massive purge during that whole time. I was, I got bronchitis. I got like, I, I got, um, I always say my, my trip with that was like, um, it was like, I think it was like a week. It took two, maybe it was like a week and a half. We were, we hiked for 40 days. I think like the first two weeks we were just going up to this like pass that was at like 5,700 meters. So it was like around 18,000 feet. And I got bronchitis that whole time. Like I was just like, I found it so hard to breathe. And I was just like purging, physically detoxing as I was like doing were this mantra throwing every up day. Liquid? Um, did you ever have that? No, oh. no. Well, 
So, and then once I got over the pass, I was like, everything is amazing. I'm going to be so much better. And there's a town on the other side of Throng La Pass. Um, and it has these 108 fountains. It was recently, I did a regression to actually figure out like why I got so sick, but I went to this fountain that's the same day that we came off the pass. And I put my hands through the 108, 108 fountains. And I was like, I just want to get rid of anything that like, I don't need anymore. And I just want to become better. Like, I just want to feel better. And then within six hours, I was throwing up. I was sicker than I have ever been in my entire life. Like gastrointestinal mayhem it lasted for 24 hours. And then I was just, I was good. Mm-hmm. I was good. And I see that as like, uh, purged. I purged, I physically purged the grief and I accepted it. And it was huge. Obviously not everyone can get a chance to do that in that particular yeah. way. Well, I, the reason I asked is like me and one of my good friends, Nirmala, we both, you know, she, her mother also died. We both experienced like during deep purges, throwing up liquid, which like just the lungs emitting liquid, like it wasn't gastrointestinal. It was just like this coughing and liquid coming out of our lungs. Wow. Um, that could have been the case with me. I couldn't very well distinguish at right. the time, but yeah. yeah. But anyways, I was just wondering, cause I feel like that's a great purge to have. Yeah. And that's one of the things I actually talked about. Um, well, we should put a disclaimer. If you are throwing up liquid, see a doctor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but what, personally, it, to me, it felt like it was an emotional purge and I was. Yeah. Um, and it kind of feels like that. I was actually, cause I feel like that's the same thing that happens during um, childbirth as well. Like, yeah, you cough up little babies. They keep coughing up all that liquid. Well, that's the amniotic fluid. In no, the but also like for me, when I go into transition, I always used to throw up a lot of information, but, um, and that's how, like, I remember Luke was like, I've only had two kids, but like, that's how Luke was like, oh yeah, she's like really into it now, you know? Um, and I always felt like it was like a grief, like you had to like accept whatever was coming on and you had to get rid of the loss in your body of feeling that because you just had to like be present for that transition. Anyway, um, one of the things that they talk about, um, that Hope Edelman talked about in this webinar was about how, when she does these motherless daughter retreats, she there's so many women there who are afraid that they will never stop crying that literally there is so much grief in their body yeah. that they're not going to be able to stop crying and the thing is is that like it's that's okay like for it's physiological impossible to not to cry forever for one thing um but it feels i know it feels like it could fill the room yeah and i remember um so uh on the property that i lived on Um, the woman who I lived with, she had recently lost her partner and within the last six months of when I had first gotten there and I, we were at a retreat together and I saw her on the, her, her partner was, um, buried on her property and the whole group of women, it was mostly Crohn's and then me, um, went over to the grave and I watched her grief and she was keening. She was like, she was keening as the sound of like, of just like. Well, she wasn't, she was just, she was, she was on the ground. She was like angry. She was like, she was just getting it fit. It was a physical experience of grief that was like very, very active, like beating the ground, Mm -hmm. crying just as much as you could possibly do. And to me, I was just like, oh my God, this is how we should treat grief in our, in our society. Like get it out, like get it out as much as you can do whatever you can. Don't stay still. Like, again, it's a form of dynamic meditation that we talked about in episode four is a form of like, you have so many emotions in your body. Like you have this dam that is holding up your river of grief and you need to get it out. And you can do that by physically getting it out. Right. I remember, um, 
I was in India. Uh, I was in Rajasthan uh, 10 years ago or so. And, um, a, a kid had gotten hit on the highway and had died like 10 cars in front of us. And they, and, and like the, there was like a little town right next to the highway. And I remember the entire town came out and they were like pulling, it was just crazy. They were just like, they were doing, they were doing what they were doing in India, but they were like pulling the, the branches off the trees to try and block the road because to them it was like, it was like they wanted, they didn't even know what to do. Like they were so upset that this child had died because they had literally died like a couple of minutes before we got there. And I could hear the sound of the woman keening for her child. Like the mother just like sitting there bawling on the thing. It's like making me really sad. I know. But like, it was so, it was so intense. And it was just like, it wasn't just her either. It was like, they were holding, like the whole village was holding space for her grief as she like sat there and grieved for her child. And it was like, it was like, you couldn't, it was like the way that they stopped the road was just like, no, like you can't go on. Like you, like no one is allowed to pass because this is a grief experience that has to happen. And we have to hold space for her to be able to do it. And I was just like, well, <laughs> why can't we do that? Like, why can't we do that? Why isn't that just like a part of the way that, that we see the world? Like, you know, I, you know, I kind of, I feel like in, in Judaism, like you have sitting Shiva and I think yeah. that that's like a really amazing thing. I don't know how much active dynamic grief is part of that, but yeah, well, we, we set Shiva, Shiva for anyone listening. It's when someone in Judaism dies, you hold space for the family to grieve for 10 days and you don't, you don't, um, Sorry, I'm still choked up over that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I need to talk right up. So yeah, in Judaism, there's the tradition that if someone dies, you let the family grieve for seven days. I mean, I remember this. You, the If a family member loses someone, you respect their need to grieve. And like that family doesn't cook. Like everyone brings meals. You take wet soap and you soap up all the mirrors so you can't see your own reflection for seven days. The idea being like, don't don't worry about how you look, you know, mm -hmm. which is really nice. I remember they got pillows out and put pillows all over the floor. And the idea, I mean, and I was a child, so maybe I'm wrong here, but the idea of being just like, be comfortable, like lay down wherever you want. Mm -hmm. And then, um, another thing they do in Judaism is whatever clothes you're wearing on the day that or the moment you're told that that your loved one dies, they tear, they just tear, they tear your clothes. Really, And I kept the shirt that I was wearing when they told me my mother had died. They, My dad came in and he said, your mother's dead. And he just took my shirt and ripped it um, like six inches. My shirt had a rip. He ripped everyone's shirt oh to tell God. us. That's so amazing. I kept that shirt for a long time. And I don't know why I'm only starting getting choked up thinking about it. I feel like that was really important. It was like a way of saying your life has changed. Like it's never going to go back. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. That to me is that, that is, that's an uh, incredible, um, we were doing it. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine is an author in Atlanta and she actually wrote an entire book. Um, I think it was a part of her master's thesis. I'm probably going to say that wrong, but I'll link it in the show notes. Her name is Kate Sweeney. She did this entire thing on how we mourn, how different cultures mourn. Um, and it was like totally enlightening about it. Right. Like I, I won't, I won't 
do justice to all the different forms of it. But like, that's, that's incredible. Like, and I remember the rip, like hearing that rip, it was just so symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're wrapping up on time. What can we say to anyone listening that can help them if they're in a grief process? I know I can say for me, I would say it's so hard to say this, but make friends with your grief. Like Mm -hmm. I will say your grief is not your enemy. It might not feel like it. It is your best friend. And your grief will never leave you, you know, and that might be scary, but it's okay because your grief loves you. I know, I know this might sound crazy, but make friends with your grief because she's not leaving. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can honestly say that like after hearing this webinar for me, especially hearing that, um, you know, one of the things I didn't mention, but is that if a kid, or, or anyone goes through a loss, there's going to be re-triggering events to your grief, right? There's going to, there, there are going to be experiences in which something happens and you may not even know what it is. And it just re-triggers that grief experience. So then you start having your grief, you, you start going through grief processes all over again. And it's really hard to like control, like, especially if you're a kid, but even if you're an adult, it's really hard to control yourself in those experiences. If you, if you haven't really made friends with that grief, right? Like making it so that you can limit, you you can address your trigger, address the grief, right? Process it as much as possible. Even if you don't have access to it, even if, even if your parent died two years ago and you still don't have access to like, how do I get to this grief? Like, I want to cry. I want to have the release. I want to be able to do it, but I can't get to it. It's like, it's okay. Just love it. Like love the fact that it doesn't want to come out yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it will. And the trigger is the kind of gift of like, oh, it finally triggered me to like, I, something happened today and I don't even know why it happened. And I just started crying and I couldn't stop crying. Like I couldn't start crying for hours. Right. Like that's okay. Like love that that experience has yet to come. Yeah. Right. And it makes those re-triggering experiences easier. If you have a child who's gone through um, bereavement to recognize that they may be going through re-triggering events all the time and they may be acting out because they're continually being triggered, which is what happened to me. Like I was kind of constantly, I feel like I was very often reprimanded for being a certain type of person, but I knew, and I recognized it was a re-triggering event. Once I saw this, this webinar and I felt free. I felt like I didn't have to be the person who everyone said I was because I was like, I was just a grief. I was a grief stricken child. Mm-hmm. And that's all it was that, 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 that doesn't, that doesn't have to define me. It's defined me to this point before a couple of weeks ago, it had defined me to that point that I was a bad or whatever child. And now I'm just like, no, I was just a grief stricken child, even though all the inner child work I've done, I'd never gotten to that point to recognize that nobody around me was equipped to deal right. with my trauma. So, yeah. yeah. On that note. Yeah. So yeah, I say seek a grief counselor, grief group, read that, read books on grief, RTT therapy. I'll put a link in the show notes about that therapy that I did was amazing. And also body work because the emotions do get trapped in the body. Mm -hmm. And if you have a good body worker, they can help you find those places in you and they hold the space for you to, to sob and, um, Yeah. Well, that sounds good. 
I guess there's not much to say. I mean, there's so much to I mean, say. We could obviously keep going. This will be a little bit of a longer I mean, yeah. episode, but yeah, there's, there's a lot here. So, um, we might check on it earlier. And obviously we emphasized early childhood and tried to say that there are other forms of grief and we can talk about the other forms of grief at another time too, yeah. in more depth. So if you're listening and you've experienced grief, just know that you're not alone. Yeah. And, um, however horrible it feels, that's a normal feeling. And it is love, love the part of you and accept the part of you that feels that way. And, and recognize that there's no, there's no expression of grief that is unacceptable. We hope you enjoyed this episode seven from season one of this spiritual fix. If you did, please give us a review. It helps us stay on the charts so people can find us. And we ask that you share this episode with anyone you know who may be struggling with grief. It's more people than you realize. Until next time. Let me tell you all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.